turning now to the Gospel of John, chapter 9 and verse 1. But as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And there follows a miracle which also serves as Christ's own illustration of conversion to God, conversion to himself. And it is about the man born blind. Now the location is easy. It was in Jerusalem. Christ, we're told, was just leaving the temple where he'd been teaching. The last verse of the previous chapter then took they up stones, the Jewish leaders, to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And he must have been still in the area of the temple where we assume this uh, man who had been born blind took up his pitch, as it were, to beg for a living. But Christ saw him. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, I generally give headings in a message, but I won't give any headings tonight, but proceed in just a simple verse-by-verse manner through this remarkable narrative. A man blind from his birth, and Christ saw him. And then he goes on to say, and we'll cover this in just a few moments, that this man's blindness was arranged, if you like, foreordained by God for the purpose of Christ restoring his sight and giving a mighty demonstration of his own divinity and a demonstration of the giving of spiritual life in conversion. So the healing was not only an act of tremendous compassion, but it was also a kind of lesson, a visual aid, a picture, an analogy of conversion to God. And he saw this man blind from his birth. The place was crowded, and there were people around him, and people standing on either side of the passage. And yet he saw this man, and he knew about him, that he had been blind from birth. And he knew exactly what he would do. And that's just a thought as we open this evening that Christ fixed his mercy and his attention on that man, knowing all about him. And that's what he does with us. If we're going to be converted, Christ knows us through and through. He knows our sin. He knows our unbelief. He knows our disrespect towards him. He knows everything we've done against his law. He knows our foolishness, what will happen to us in life and in death if we go on that way. And he fixes his mercy upon us. That's the way Christ conducts himself. But in verse 2, there's a seeming digression because his disciples asked him, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents? Was it because his parents were in sin in some way that he was conceived blind? Or was it on account of something this man would do in his own life? 
that he's punished in advance, as it were, from the beginning? Was it through sin of his parents or himself? Now they asked this because this was the wrong idea that was taught by their religious teachers, their clergy at that time, that these uh, conditions, health conditions, are visited upon people directly as a punishment for sin. Well, it's true that all conditions, all health conditions, true to a point, are because of human sin, because of original sin, the fall of man away from God. And therefore, this is a world under judgment. And because of sin and because of human disobedience, God has withdrawn his blessing and his protective hand. And all these things happen. The principle of death came in. It's part of what we call the curse, the punishment of God upon mankind because of human sin. So in a general sense, everything that is painful and grievous is due to that original fall of man. But it doesn't work in a specific way. God does not pick out anyone's particular sin and then lay upon them uh, an awful disease as a punishment. Why, if that were the way of God, we'd all be sick and dreadfully sick or disabled in some way as a punishment. No, it's not a specific matter. It's a general matter. And they'd got it wrong. But Christ says in verse 3, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Well, they had, obviously, because everyone is a sinner. Every man, every woman. But it wasn't due to some particular sin that they had carried out. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. How God works. So it's not only going to be a, an act of compassion, this healing. It's going to be a demonstration of how God works spiritually to give spiritual sight and life. Then Christ says in verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh. He knows that before long he's going to voluntarily give himself up to suffer and to be unjustly tried and to be crucified on a cross. He knows all that's going to happen and when the right time comes he will allow it to happen because on that cross something far beyond human punishment is going to happen. God will put upon him all the sins of those who would be forgiven in the history of the world and punish him instead of them. And he knew it was coming. He constantly refers to it in some shape or form while he's on earth. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm teaching the way of salvation. Now, to the actual healing, verse 6. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, anointed the eyes of the blind man 
with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Why did the Lord do that? Why cake his eyes in mud? It wasn't his usual method. He would usually heal just at a word or a touch. Why make mud? Put it on his eyes and not give him instant healing, but say, go to the pool of Siloam, very famous place, the pool of Siloam. It had been created 700 years before when Sennacherib, a Syrian emperor, came to sack Jerusalem and to destroy it and to take everyone captive. And by way of preparation, King Hezekiah had built a tunnel or dug a tunnel from way outside the city, stopping up a water course and diverting its water into this tunnel. And it ran right into the city. And they made a deep pool which collected the water with steps leading down to it, all in stone. And that remarkable feat of engineering had existed to bring water into the city for 700 years. And Christ's instruction to this man is go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Why, we ask? Why not a sudden healing like all the countless others? Why mud? Well, first of all, there's a small reason. And it's this. Because for the man's eyes to be caked with mud, common mud, spittle and clay, in our King James Version, indicated to everybody that the power was not in the remedy, but in Christ. Anybody could have done that, made mud. That wouldn't do any good. Everyone knew that that local mud had no medicinal property or capacity to restore sight to the blind. So it was obvious to them that it was Christ alone, not the method that was employed. Well, why employ a method? Because at the same time as being a healing, it was a picture, an illustration of the healing of spiritual blindness. When the dead soul, far away from God, comes to Christ and is converted, and the first thing, the first necessity is to be washed, to be forgiven. So it's obvious, the mud caked on his eyes represents the pollution and the filthiness of the human heart, the sinfulness and the waywardness, and it must be washed away. But again, it wasn't going to be the pool of Siloam that would do it. It's just a symbol. It was the fact that Christ had ordered it. He is the only one who can wash away sin. And just think, this man must have thought to himself, oh, this is impossible for me. I am blind. Who am I going to get to help me? I've got to ask every step along the way, somebody to guide me to the pool of Siloam, 
when I get there, all I know about it, it, there are four or five flights of very steep stone steps. You have to be fit, agile, and seeing. How can I do that? I'm going to have to prevail upon someone. Take me down. I've been told by a man, I don't know where he is, that if I come down here and dip myself and wash this mud off, I will see. Don't take any notice of that, they would surely have said. How could that possibly be? It would be so easy for him to drop this. Nice thought. He's never seen anything. He's been blind from birth. He must have been given by God a strong faith to see this through. This man, he thinks he's only a man, we'll see it in a moment, told me to go and wash off this mud that is put on me. Who is he? What's this about? Cannot know he's special. He has something. I must do this. And he trusted the word of Christ. So you've got two things in the picture. Picture of how you come to God. You have to wash away your sin. And Christ must do that for you. And you have to believe in him and trust in him. The two ingredients are there in what took place in this healing miracle. It must have been quite a step to get to the pool of Siloam, apart from the downward steps. And here's the third principle. To get to the pool of Siloam, you have got to go down, down, down. You need washing, you need to trust Christ, and you've got to humble yourself. We call it repentance. Lord, I am a sinner. I think so well of myself. I think I'm better than others. I imagine I do some good things. But no, Lord, I've had a glimpse of my heart and its meanness and selfishness and greed and dishonesty and all its pride and all that's wrong with me. I'm coming down, you see. Lord, forgive me. I cannot contribute to this. I must have free salvation and pardon and life. All those three things are in this astonishing picture of events that the Lord adopted in this particular case to give sight to this blind man. And it's very clear. Verse 7, said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. I won't go into that now, but there's another lesson in that. This water was sent into the city, especially precious in times of siege. And he must trust in Christ, who was sent from the Father on high to come and purchase redemption for all who believe in him. And the end of verse 7, he went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. You must obey the instructions of Christ. What are they? To be converted, to have spiritual life, to be set on the road to heaven, 
What are the instructions? Live a better life? No. Of course, by the power of God, you will live a better life. But that's not the instruction. Live a better life. Because you can't do it. You can't earn heaven. The instruction is go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, he had his sight. I should think he must have leapt up those steps. Everything was a complete wonder to him. Amazing sights. The neighbours, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not he, this he that sat and begged? There's the information that that's all he could do, beg. Some said it is. Others said, no, it's just like him. But then he said, he was the man. So they ask him, verse 10, how were thine eyes opened? And he tells them, a man that is called Jesus. And we pause there. Even after his healing, he is unable to say more about Christ than this, a man that is called Jesus. It still hasn't sunk in that he's more than a man, that he's God, that this is a divine act, that he is the incarnate Son of God who's taken upon himself a human body so that he can suffer and die in our place. A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Where is he, they said, I know not. And they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And as we read on in the narrative, it's quite clear they've taken him to the offices by the temple and that the Pharisees assemble an official hearing to hear about this and to make some sort of judgment on it. As you read, the rest of the narrative has all the ring of an official interrogation by the Pharisees. They brought him to them. Why did they do that? It's just about possible that, of course, they knew the Pharisees wanted him executed. They knew the Pharisees were against Christ. It's just about possible that they meant well. That they thought, well, he should be taken to the Pharisees and uh, then they'll become convinced that Christ is at least some great prophet and more likely the promised Messiah. But the truth and the reality more probably is that they were frightened for themselves. The Pharisees were condemning anyone who followed Christ. We've witnessed these things. We've seen this man who's received his sight. We know him. We better report him or we'll be in trouble. That's more the spirit, I think. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. Now watch the changes in the man's attitude. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. 
This is an official hearing. He told them. Verse 16, Therefore some of the Pharisees, most of them, said, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. The Pharisees had a most extreme and exaggerated view of the Sabbath day. They wouldn't even allow good works and healings to take place on the Sabbath day. They were so ritualistic. But others of the Pharisees in verse 16 said, how can a man that is a sinner do such things? And the official hearing was divided. Most of them condemned Christ, but many of them were in his favor. So they call the man again, verse 17. What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So they say, let's go through this again. Let's hear from you, what do you think? And this time he's advanced in his thinking. It's no longer a man called Jesus did this. He is a prophet, he says. He's still not 100% right, but his view is getting better and better. For the man who's given him sight, he feels so indebted to him. And verse 18, I won't go into this because it's taking a long time, so cynical were the Jews, and every time you read Jews in this narrative, it means the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, not all the Jews, but the leaders. They didn't believe that the man had been born blind. They're looking for a way out. They're looking for troubles. We don't want to believe this. We don't want to accept this. So they interrogated the parents. And the parents were rather frightened. And they said, well, it is our son. We know he was blind. He now sees. Ask him. He's of age. And so on. And then they call him again. Verse 24, a third hearing. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise generally. Don't give the credit to this man Jesus and they bully the once blind man and try to get him to cave in and to shut up about the details of his healing it doesn't suit their purpose but he wasn't having it he was so grateful and so convinced verse 25 he answered and said whether he is a sinner or no I know not one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. So they press him again. How did he do it? They're looking for snags. They want another version. And he answers in verse 27, I've told you already, you wouldn't hear. Do you want to hear it again? And he adds this, and these words are loaded. Will ye also be his disciples? Can you see the advance in his thought? A man called Jesus, he is a prophet. Will you also, like me, be one of his disciples? He's moving all the time. 
from not knowing who Christ was to recognizing he's a special one, a prophet, and pledging himself to follow him and standing up for him, even in a hostile, pharisaical court hearing. Verse 28, then they reviled him. Let's translate that in a word you're more accustomed to these days. The Greek doesn't say a word that is exactly reviled. It says something that means simply, then they abused him. And the word is all-inclusive. What did they do? They shoved him and pushed him. They may even have slapped at him. And he was hit by a volley of verbal abuse. They derided him. And they said to him, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. Of course, they weren't Moses' disciples. They thought they were, but if they'd really been listening to Moses... Moses prophesied the Messiah, the coming Christ. He said, one day there was one coming like me, in that he'd be human, but he'd be God as well. Hear him, bow to him. He is the Messiah, the Savior. They weren't listening to Moses. But look at what they say about Christ in verse 29. As for this fellow... If you've got a King James Version, you'll see that as for and fellow are in italic. They're not in the Greek. The translators are trying to help us and give us the sense. What they actually said, we know that God spake unto Moses, this, they say contemptuously, this, we know not where he comes from. Imagine speaking about Christ like that. How insulting. This. To make the sense, our translators have quite fairly said, as for this fellow, but it loses some of the punch of the derision and the contempt. This. Those men were so clever. The scribes were intelligent, intensely clever men, learned men. You can be so clever and so blind to spiritual things that you call Christ this. We have it today. Never has there been a more educated generation than the present generation. And yet we're an unbelieving atheistic generation we know so much and we know so little we're so learned and so ignorant at the same time we see earthly things material things and we fail to see spiritual things wasn't it sad to hear some of the top astrophysicists in this past week speaking about a whole new vista of stars and constellations without a mention of God. 
so knowledgeable, so unable to see creation and its purpose and its destiny. Like the scribes of those days, we have it here. Well, says the man, verse 30, the man answered and said unto them, herein is a marvelous thing, something so astonishing you would never have thought it, that ye of all people know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Well, our time is up. When Jesus heard, verse 35, that they'd cast him out of the temple and the synagogue, and when he found him, he asked him a final thing. This completes the picture of conversion. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Christ, in so many words, said, I am the Son of God. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's the picture in the miracle altogether. He obeyed the instructions of the Lord. He went to be washed. He went down the steep steps and humbled himself and repented of his sin as he called upon God. And he believed in Christ. He believed who he was, the Son of God. In due time, he would believe what he'd done, suffered and died on a cross to purchase salvation, to pay the price of sin on our behalf. And he trusted him and believed in him. That's how we come. That's how you come. Do you need spiritual sight and life and eternal life? See your need. Humble yourself. Seek the washing which only Christ can give to wash away your guilt and your sin. Believe in him, in his great love and kindness and his mighty power, and he will forgive you, draw you to himself, bring you to know him, and transform your life. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all this night and help us. We pray that thou would open eyes, that thou would subdue pride, that thou would give us great desire for salvation and for forgiveness. Come and work, O oh Lord, by the power of the Spirit, that we may find him, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, and know him. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.